and also uh, Hector and Samantha. Stand up. There we go. May 26th, they will share their nuptials and be joined in holy matrimony. So we look forward to performing that service also on May 26th. So we'll have a lot to celebrate when we come together for the picnic. Amen. Our text, as you, I know again, happy Mother's Day to those who have joined us who weren't here at the beginning of our service and no, we will not be preaching from the, uh, the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31. We honor mothers on every day of the year, but we don't order our preaching according to Hallmark. Amen. So our text this morning is not Proverbs 31. Our text this morning is from the 119th number of Psalms, and we'll read verses 65 through 72. Psalms 119, beginning in verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now we have consistently noted as it relates to this 119th psalm, uh, long as it is, it is a very long chapter, but it is a prolonged homage to the word of God. And we've consistently called attention to the fact that although many different terms are used to describe uh, or in reference to the word of God, such as God's word, your precepts, your statutes, your commandments, your law. All of those things are used to describe God's word, but the word of God itself can be divided along two lines. It is his, his revealed word to us comes to us either as a word of promise which is the gift of the gospel, or a word of command, which is his law. All of the other narratives that describe the, the reception or understanding of God's word or law, everything else, all of the doctrines that flow from it, the purpose of God's revealed word to us is to reinforce what he has commanded by way of law and to announce what he gives by way of the gospel. That being the case, the first thing that I want to note as we look at our text this morning is that in the first line of this stanza, and, and all of Psalms 119 is divided into stanzas. Uh, the stanzas are lettered according to the Hebrew alphabet. This would, be, this would correspond really to the letter T. But uh, the, the first line of this stanza 
David references the word of God. And here's my first point. I would argue that David's reference to the word of God in verse 65 is a reference to uh, God's word of promise. In other words, what David is alluding to in verse 65 is a reference to the gospel. Notice what he says. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. God's goodness towards his saints that are bounded in his word of promise is the gospel. And of course, the ultimate good that God does for his image bearers, the ultimate good that comes from God is the promise, is everything that he has promised and provided in the gospel. So when David says in verse 65, you have dealt well with your servant. In fact, the actual wording in the Hebrew would put it this way. You have dealt good with your servant. And the good that God has dealt with us, and notice what he does is he anchors the goodness of God to his servants, to his word. And the goodness of God towards his servants or towards the saints is couched in his word of promise. Elsewhere in the Psalms, I think it's Psalms 110 or or Psalms uh, 104 where the writer says that you are good to all of your creation or you are good to everything that you have made and it goes on to refer to God's goodness to the animals. Jesus even says that God is good to all. He causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. But what David does in our text is that he he specifies God's goodness according to his word. Sunshine is not according to his word. Rain, rainfall is not according to his word. Therefore, I would argue that all of the goodness of God towards his image bearers in terms of the gospel, or I should say all of God's goodness towards his saints, is given to us in the constraints of his word of promise. In other words, everything that is necessary for life and godliness. Now, I think there are two ways that we can look at David's statement here. On the one hand, when he says that that you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word, on the one hand, I think what he is saying is that what he is referring to is what God has given his saints in the promise of the gospel. Because certainly God has given in the gospel, God deals with us, because what he does in the gospel is he gives us what we most need. And he gives us what we don't deserve. The gospel answers our biggest problem. Many people don't understand what their biggest problem is. But the gospel answers our biggest problem. And our biggest problem is that we are at enmity with God. And as the member back in the 70s, I think it was, they had to play, your arms are too short to box with God. And so our problem is that we have, an un, we have some unfinished business with God. And what God gives us in the gospel is he finishes that business. 
So he takes care of all of our problems. So, so therefore God deals well with us through, according to his word because in his word of promise he gives us what we need most. And he gives it to people who are undeserving. But also on the other hand, I, I think what David also is alluding to here is that everyone who, whom God gives the promise of the gospel, he assures them that there is nothing that, that he assures them, everyone that he gives the gift of the gospel, he assures them that his goodness will continuously be with them. So in other words, it's kind of what, what in, in all circumstances, it's kind of what, what Paul means in Romans 8.28 when he says all things work together for good. He's not saying that only good will happen to us. But he is saying that because those all things work together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose, so all of his saints, no matter what happens, God will still work it for our good. And so therefore in verse 1 or verse 65, David is saying in essence that God has dealt with him according to his word. And according to his word is according to what he has promised. And because of what he has promised, what that means is that in spite of life's circumstances, God's goodness will continuously be upon him. And we know that it will be because God has given him the goodness of his grace in his word of promise. So in the first place, we need to recognize that in verse 65, and, and one of the reasons I think this is helpful is because almost every other, or just about every other reference in this stanza to the word of God is a reference to God's law. And so it's in God's word of promise in verse 65 that we understand how good God deals with us. Now, let me just say this also. I, I think it's helpful because sometimes we get sidetracked. We hear that God has promised so much that we don't know whether or not what God has promised is according to his word. And so we look at life circumstances, people are, prom are, are, are excuse me, I should say, people are claiming promotions that God hasn't for them, hasn't promised them, because they say, well, I'm covered in the blood. But God did not send his son for you to get a promotion on your job. Doesn't mean you won't get promoted, but that's not a gospel promise. What, Paul, what, what, what David is referring to here is, Lord, you have dealt good with your servant according to your revealed word. And therefore, because you have promised us according to your word certain good, I know that's what you will give. And therefore, there is nothing that we will experience in life that will hinder God's good from reaching us because of his word of promise. So verse 65 focuses on God's word of promise, which is his gospel. And a good summary of the gospel is that in the gospel, the goodness of God towards undeserving sinners is announced. But here's the second thing to note. Complacency within the bounds of, of God's word of promise Complacency. If God has given us his promise of grace, his word of promise, complacency within the bounds of God's word of promise invariably leads us to stray outside of his word of command. 
complacency within the boundaries of his word of promise so that we are just, we're the big hen's chicken because God has, of everything that he has given us in the promise, when we cease to be awed by that, when we cease to be grounded in that, when we cease to be grateful in that, we will grow complacent with it. And complacency within the boundaries of God's word of promise invariably leads us to go outside of his boundaries of his word or the boundaries of his word of law. Notice that David says in verse 67, he confesses, I went astray. I went astray. It's really the sentiment that's captured in that great hymn, uh, Come Thou Found, prone to wander. Lord, I feel, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, I love. That's not just them, that's us. The issue is what would cause us to stray from God's word of, or to stray? And I would argue that it is complacency. Here's, here's, listen, here's, here's what this is grounded in. This is grounded in the reality that Christians continue to wrestle and struggle with sin. And so the question is, why then? And in fact, we, if we were to back up, I think the question must be raised when, when David says in verse 67, I went astray, one must, has to, or must raise the question, did David stray, did he go astray from God's word of promise? Or did he go astray from God's word of law? Well, God's word of promise is all about God working. God's word of promise is all about God acting on our behalf. God's word of promise is what God does for undeserving sinners. And since Paul says in Romans 5, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound, it seems to follow that David, neither David nor anyone else can go astray from God's word of promise. Again, let's, let's hear that. There, there is no one, there is no saint, there is no one who is regenerate can go astray from God's word of promise. And the reason you can't go astray from God's word of promise is because you're not the one acting in the promise. The one, what God's word of promise is, he will love us with an everlasting love. All you can do, the only thing you can bring to that is what you bring to your salvation to begin with, which is sin. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is sin. And so we, I would therefore argue that God's word, when David says, but I went astray, he did not go astray from the word of promise. There's a phrase that Christians use in a contemporary sense when we talk about Christian obedience. We talk about the gospel and we say, but now you have to live the gospel. Let me give you this news announcement. You cannot live the gospel. The gospel is not your life. The gospel is not your testimony. The gospel is God's announcement to you. 
And so when, Paul, when David says in verse 65, you have dealt well with your saints or with your servant, he is referring to what God has promised in his word of promise. And in the word of promise, what God has given is everything that we need. So therefore, you cannot, you cannot go astray from God's word of promise because his word of promise is about his work and his actions on your behalf. That's why there are no need, there's no need for rebaptisms. There's no need for rededications. There is no need for renewals. Because God's grace is all about his work. And so you say, well, I went astray. Yeah, but that didn't stop you from being your own or being God's very own beloved. I have a sister that the Lord called home a few years ago and she went uh, a number of years where she was away from us and we didn't see her. She had distanced herself, had, had gone and, and gotten caught up in a lot of things and, and, and I remember the, the first time I had seen her and it had been over well over 10 years and I hadn't seen her and we grew up a very close family and I hadn't seen her. And I, and, and I could see when I, when I saw her for the first time after so many years, I could see the wear and tear of what she'd been through in her face. I could see all of the disappointments in her own expressions. But she was no less my sister then than before when she left home. There was no rededications. There was no reacquaintances there was just the embrace of siblings. Brothers and sisters, we cannot go astray from what God has promised. When we go astray, we don't go astray from. I, I like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He's dealing with a very delicate issue of sexual immorality. And he gives this issue, he talks about those who have been engaged in temple prostitution and he says this, don't you know that you have been bought with the price and that your body is not your own but it belongs to the Lord? And then he doesn't say, now if you go in with the prostitute, you will cease to be the property of God. Here's what he says. He says, now are you going to join the body of Christ to a prostitute? Because that's exactly what we do. So here's the question. David says, I went astray. He talks about God's goodness in verse 65, which is according to his word of promise. But in verse 67, he talks about him going astray. Does David go astray from God's word of promise or God's word of command, his word of law? I would argue that he's gone astray from God's word of law because it's not possible for him to go astray from God's word of promise. Three observations in this regard. Understand this. Number one, the purpose of God's word of promise is to reconnect God's people to his word of law. God, the purpose of God's word of promise, the, 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 the purpose of God's word of grace, above all else, 
It is to reconnect us to his word of law. So that as Paul says in in Ephesians 1, that he has chosen you in Christ since before the foundation of the world for what purpose to be holy and righteous standing before him in love. The purpose of God's word of promise is to reconnect us to his word of law. Because in our fallen state, we fall short of what the law demands and therefore we stand condemned before God. And we can't have a right standing. And so the purpose of God's word of promise is to fix us so that we can stand before him in love. In Romans chapter 3 verse 31, Paul says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? He says, by no means. Rather, we uphold the law. Secondly, observe secondly that the grace that we receive in God's word of promise is intended as a means of transforming our thought process. The the reason that God gives us his grace is not just to give us all the stuff like I said he didn't give us his word of promise so that we can get promoted on our jobs but he does give us his word of promise so that we can renew our minds. We have a mind problem. We have a sin problem, but the reason we have, because we have a sin problem, we actually have a mind problem. Look at what David says in verse 66 of our text. He says, since, and I'm going to reverse it, I'm going to give it to you in the order in which it's intended, because you notice that his subject really comes at the end. In verse 66, I'll read it first the way it's, re- it's written, but let me explain the way that he means it. He says, teach me good judgments and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments and so therefore if we reverse that and give it to give it its logical sequence it would read like this since I believe in your commandments teach me good judgment and knowledge because that's basically what he's saying I I believe he's not he's not saying that the law gives us good judgment that's why I like this statement teach me he says in essence Since I believe in your commandments, this is consistent with what Paul does in Romans chapter 7 when he says we know that the law is holy and just and it's good. In my own self, I want to do what the law requires. I desire to do it, but I can't and I don't. And so what David is saying is, since therefore I believe in the goodness of your commandments, therefore, O God, teach me good judgment. I think this is also Paul's logic in Romans chapter 12, when he appeals to the mercies of God that are received in God's word of promise. Beginning in verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Therefore, brothers and sisters, I would conclude that what David is saying in verse 66, he's saying this in retrospect, And having received God's word of promise, he has somehow grown complacent in it. And he recognizes that even though he is a recipient of God's word of promise, he hasn't acted in good judgment. 
And so he's asking for God, now, Lord, teach me. Teach me. Give me good judgment. Here's a third observation here. Therefore, I would conclude that David, when David, when he went astray, he went astray from God's word. And the reason he went astray from God's word at some point, we don't know which incident in his life is being alluded to here, but the reason David went astray from God's word is his word of command is because somehow in his grasp of God's word of promise, David got complacent to the point that he somehow, to whatever degree, he grew complacent to the point that God's word of promise was just ho-hum and it did not allow, it, he did not filter the knowledge of God's word of promise into all areas of his thinking. I think this is what Peter is warning against. In 2 Peter, when he says, now add to your faith. In fact, he, he makes this statement. He says, make your calling and election sure. And the reason, he's, the, way, the reason he gives, he says, add to your faith this and add to that. But then he says, for this reason, so that you don't grow, so that you don't forget what you once were. That's, that's his language. That's his logic there. Something about God's word of promise had developed a complacency within David where he no longer saw the urgency of maintaining his character according to God's calling on his life. And so therefore now after the fact, he says, I went astray. Why did he go astray? It's not that he strayed from God's promises. He strayed from God's command. Maybe somehow knowing that there is nothing that can separate him from the love of God, maybe something in knowing that caused him to grow complacent in testing the boundaries. You know, I remember as a child in elementary school, you would hear people say, and they wanted to confirm that they were telling the truth. Well, if I'm lying, may the Lord, may, may, may God just strike me down. I remember the first time hearing that. I was like, wow, that's pretty bold, right? But I noticed that two things. One, the person who was speaking was lying. And two, I noticed that they weren't struck down. So therefore, the next time they said, if I'm lying, may the Lord strike me down, I wasn't quite as look, looking for the door as I was the first time I heard it because I don't know what that looks like when God strikes someone down. And then, you know, my mother had a cousin whose name was Bobby and Bobby had, he was, we just, old lying Bobby. And he, if he was present, he was lying. And he was so good at it that he was entertaining with it. I mean, he was just, uh, he, I mean, really, it was, it was by the popcorn time when Bobby was around. And the more my mother would say, Bobby, you know you're lying, he'd, he'd sweeten the pot. He'd make it more bold. Here's my point, brothers and sisters. Once we know that, that if, and sometimes this, this is just us, we, we test the boundaries. 
Once we realize, because same thing with, with Adam. Adam, the day you eat, you'll surely die. And he didn't die. And my point is this, that when, when judgment is delayed, it emboldens the action sometimes. And so perhaps there was something that David understood about the fullness of God's grace. Maybe David realized that he's not the umpire in the sky that I thought he was. He's not, he's not going to strike me down every time something goes wrong. And he pushed the border. So rather than saying, thank you for your mercy, thank you for your grace, there was something in David. It's not the fault of the grace he received that emboldened him to see things in a way that terror of God's law would not allow him to see it in that way. And so why does, he, why does he go astray? Like the reason that all of us go astray, because the path that we choose to follow, in the moment in which we choose it, seems better than the one that we're on. And so David says, I went astray. I went outside. I can't go outside of the boundaries of your word of promise. But it is possible for the saints to go outside of the boundaries of God's word of command. And the reason we go outside of the word, God's word of command, is because as James says, that sin begins with desire. And desire awakens within us something that sometimes, something that needs to be put to rest. It awakens within us and it, and it develops. And so David went astray, not because it got dark and he lost his way. But David went astray because he could clearly see the path of righteousness. And in that moment of decision, the path of sin seemed more appealing to him than the path of righteousness. That's why we sin. The reason we sin, because in that moment of choice, what is contrary to God's word seems better to us than God's word. So I begin, I, I go back to the point that the way we began this, this point, complacency within the boundaries of God's word of promise invariably leads us to go outside of the boundaries of his word of command. But that brings us to a third and final thing. Here we see that in the aftermath of David's conscious straying from the word of command, we see the extent of the boundaries of God's goodness. Because David references that his affliction was used by God to get his attention. 
Look at what he says in verse 67. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Look at what he says in verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. There was something that David, something in David that was disconnected from the, what he ought to be because of he was maybe basking, maybe he was swaggering, I don't know. But whatever it was, David was focusing or had lost the sense of awe of what God had given. So therefore, he didn't have a corresponding awe to what God had commanded. He strayed from the word of God's law because he was too comfortable and complacent in the word of God's promise. And God, in his, to show you how good he is in what he gives in the gospel, God, for the benefit of his saint, afflicted him. Afflicted him. Again, because we don't know what particular sin that is referenced here. It could be the sin with Bathsheba. We don't know, but we don't need to know. And the reason we don't need to know is because sometimes we would be too quick to say, this is going on in my life because God is afflicting me. But it's the interesting thing is usually when we try to find how God is afflicting us, we never start with our going astray from his command even as we are covered in his word of promise. But here's what I do want to do. I just want to make three observations on God's affliction in the life of his saints. Because, in fact, in using David as the example and as the model, and we'll return to that and we'll look at how God uses it, I'm thinking of three examples. One that I'll just mention in passing of how God brings affliction, and out of that affliction, he then prepares his, in fact, he improves the life of his saint through the affliction. The first one that comes to mind, of course, is Esau, or is Jacob. Jacob, when he wrestled with the Lord, and remember, Jacob always had a swagger. He, he was kind of, you know, he was kind of, he had a swagger about him, but then he encountered the Lord and wrestled with him, and the Lord threw his hip out of socket. And Jacob lost his swagger and gained a limp. And one preacher says he was a better man with a limp than he was without it. But, but, but there are some examples. Here's the first thing. Here's why would God send affliction for the good of his people? The first thing is this. God sends sometimes afflictions in the lives of his saints to remind them of their need for what he has given in his word of promise. Sometimes God sends afflictions to his saints to remind them of their need. That, that in other words, what God has given us in the gospel, in his word of promise, that's not, you know, that, that, that's not, it's not if you want it. It's there because you need it. And so sometimes God, through affliction, shows us that what he has given us is not something that we might want to use if we get around to it, but everything that he has given us in the gospel, we desperately need. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about a thorn that the Lord put in his flesh. 
You know the reason for that thorn in his flesh? He had experienced, he opens the chapter by talking about the spiritual high that he experienced to the point where he saw and heard things that no man, no mortal should hear. The voice of angels almost. He heard, he had such a spiritual high that the Lord, that he says that lest he be exalted above measure. The Lord sent him a thorn in the flesh to buffet him, a messenger of Satan. God sent it. He says God sent it. That God sent it not just to to throw him off, but to show him his need. And, And Paul says he prayed three times for that thorn to be removed. And the Lord told him no. And the reason that he gives, he says, because my strength is made manifest in your weakness. I think one of the side effects of contemporary Christianity where we have lifted all of the right weights and done all the right things is that we have become spiritually self-sufficient. Therefore, we are not as much in need of what God gives us at his table what God gives us through the ordinary means of his preached word. We think that we are in need of something else. We've graduated. I was listening to a podcast earlier today of a man who, um, he's talking about this young guy, 24 years old, came up with a new business where he figures that his life and his calling is so big and so important that he doesn't need food anymore. And so he says he's upset because, you know, he's a peaceful person and, and yet uh, the, the person that designed his, his kitchen, his, his apartment, they gave him a kitchen that he doesn't need. He, he doesn't need food. He says, why am I surrounded by knives and forks? I don't need food. But he recognizes that he needs nutrients, so he created a new food that will not take him away from his time of working. And it's called Soylent. The irony, of course, is that most of us who remember the early 70s, the movie called Soylent Green. And the whole point behind Soylent Green is that people were taken and grounded up and were made a substitute for food and you would drink Soylent Green to maintain your life. You see, it's God created us with a need for him. He created us with biological needs for food. And again, here's what sometimes we are like this young man are so busy that we get so busy being church, being Christian, that we have no need for the things that God has given us. And sometimes he afflicts us to bring us to our knees. Sometimes he sends afflictions into the pride, the spiritual pride of his people to get us from talking to angels and to get us talking to one another. God sends afflictions to those that he has given his goodness in his word of promise to show his people that when I called you, you were nothing. And without me, you are still nothing. God sends us sometimes, he sends us affliction to get us 
to get us to see what we need to see and sometimes even say what we need to say. And so David somehow had gotten complacent within the boundaries of God's word of promise that it empowered and emboldened him to trespass God's word of command. And then God sends an affliction his way to show David that the reason that I gave you the promise was not so that you could rough, run roughshod over my command. But I gave you the promise so that you would see your need for everything that he has given in the word of promise. You see, if we have, if God has given us everything in Christ and we have leftover pieces, then that means we have not understood what he's given us. And sometimes God gives us affliction so that we could see we need everything that he's given us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, that we have sanctification and justification and wisdom and righteousness in Christ so that we never dare stand before God again thinking that we have wisdom on our own, a righteousness that gives us a right standing apart from that which is in Christ and that somehow we can earn our sanctification. But Here's the second thing. Sometimes God sends affliction in the lives of his believers so that they can see the vileness of their remaining sin. Jonah is the example here. Jonah gets a word from the Lord in chapter 1. Go to Nineveh and preach against Nineveh. Jonah instead books a cruise going in the other direction. And the Lord said, but I, I didn't say if you had a chance, go to Nineveh. I didn't say if you felt like it, go to Nineveh. I said, go to Nineveh. And I know you know a little bit about geography, so you think that getting in a ship going the other direction from Nineveh is going to keep you from going to Nineveh. So the Lord afflicted the seas. Jonah got thrown out. And God appointed a, a great fish and got Jonah's attention. Then finally, when Jonah stands before God, he says, listen, I, I, and, and God sends, he sends repentance to the Ninevites. And what Jonah didn't have the backbone to say before he went to Nineveh, he says it when God gives repentance. I knew you were going to forgive them. You know what kind of country they come from. And, and I'm not all about, I hate Ninevites and here you are forgiving them. Instead of rejoicing in what God had done, then Jonah decides, well, I'm going to pout about this. Went outside of the city and found a tree and slept under the tree. And then he's just letting his anger just boil up within him. And God sent another animal. He sent a big fish the first time and sent a little worm the second time. 
let the worm eat up the shade tree. Jonah had the nerve to get upset. God says, look at your sin. You're more concerned about a tree that you had nothing to do with. You're upset at me for saving Ninevites created in my image. The beautiful part about the book of Jonah is that Jonah opens as a racist and the book closes with him being a racist, but he's God's racist. And God sends affliction for Jonah to deal with of how ugly the sin of racism is in one who has been saved by grace. Sometimes God sends affliction so that those that he saves with his word of promise can see how ugly your remaining sin is so that as Paul says in Romans 7, we would see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. You see, so that it's not, it's not gossip over there, but it's me just speaking my peace over here. No, I need to see me as being vile and despicable in the sight of God apart from his grace. But here's a third and final observation that sometimes God sends affliction for his saints to nurture within them a love for the beauty of holiness that was somehow ill-formed. Notice what David says in verse 72. The law of your mouth is now better to me. He's speaking after the affliction. This is why he says it was good that you afflicted me. I think David is speaking something that is fleeting in us. It's going to be there today and not tomorrow. But what he says in verse 72 is that your law in the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Can we not infer from that that when we go astray from God's word of commandment, it is because we saw more of a beauty and value in that which is contrary to the law of God rather than having a simple grasp of the beauty of holiness. In other words, brothers and sisters, that's what Joseph, that's what he, that's what he displays when, when Potiphar's wife tried to make the hit on him. What Joseph was clinging to was the beauty of holiness over the beauty of Potiphar's wife. What David is now saying is, Lord, the word, the law that comes out of your mouth is more beautiful, it is more precious to me than many pieces of silver 
or gold. The very law that you have commanded, that which I can't do, but, but I see the beauty of holiness. Maybe I strayed. It's not because I didn't know how binding your law was. But in that instance, your law came in second place. But now through my affliction, your law, law that, and notice where he puts this. He doesn't just say your precepts. He doesn't just say your statutes. He recognizes that the reason the law of God is beautiful is because it comes from the very mouth of God. And so therefore, David's request is to teach me. Teach me your law. Cover me again in your word of promise. But teach me your law so that I can have a better judgment. Because now, Lord, I see a beauty and a value in holiness in the oughtness of what you have required in your law. It is more desirable to me than silver or gold. David says you have dealt well with your servant and the reason God has dealt well with us through his word of promise is because he's given us everything that we need. And his goodness understands that we, like sheep, have all gone astray. But his goodness is better than our straying. And so sometimes God, God sends he, I love, he, he sends servants with beautiful feet to deliver us unto salvation. And sometimes he sends afflictions to deliver us from the mess that we continue to get in. Brothers and sisters, I would close with this, that the affliction that has been issued from the hand of God is an extension and an expression of the goodness that he gives in his word of promise. There is no place that we can scatter that he does not find us in salvation. And there is no place that we can stray that he does not keep us in our sanctification. You, O oh Lord, have dealt well with your servant according to your word of promise. Thank God for his word. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we thank you.